0: Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 19th of February with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues Peter White and Harry Morgan.
1: This high-deal initiative, high-deal ambition, Andries, which is, you know, strangely a hydrogen story which uh, which Harry didn't write, you, you did. So just walk us through the size of this um, uh, initiative.
0: Well, it's got 30 involved companies and a couple of developers, a couple of investors, a couple of utilities and, and so on and some uh, electrolyzer suppliers. And they've been planning it for two years on, on the side. They haven't actually said anything about it until now, when they outlook out with this declaration that by 2030, they want to have 95 gigawatts of solar power in Spain, maybe a little bit in France as well, and, and 67 gigawatts of electrolyzers powered by that solar. Yeah. And that's enough to, to satisfy about a quarter of spain's sort of oil demand if you convert it into hydrogen which is a bit more energy intensive per tonne 3.6 million tons they said and the first phase they'll start working on in 2022 so, so this is all in spain i think so yes but they're going to be transporting some of it up into france and then even into germany
1: i think basically wh- whenever you get any um substance that can be traded across a wide geography as soon as you have an abundance of supply in one place it's it suddenly becomes quite attractive and people start making you offers oh we'll have some of that we'll pay you this all of these things will get sucked into a a pan-european distribution i would think
0: yeah and one of the i noticed one of the involved companies is a north is an italian utility so is that SNAM? yes it was
1: yeah and so they can copy it or they can extend it and they can join the initiative And then they can. uh, Isn't it funny? All these solar countries that have traditionally been uh, low productivity countries who who don't have much in the way of exports to France and Germany and the the northern Europe. Suddenly they go, yeah, but we've got sunshine. We can export the sunshine as electricity or as hydrogen to the rest of Europe. This is this is definitely our game. So naturally, they want to they want to get a jump on it.
2: Sixty seven gigawatts is so huge as well. I mean, the EU were promising forty gigawatts in that time frame, um, in their deals that they sort of announced sort of six months ago. So yeah, sixty seven gigawatts is absolutely massive. And I think I think I remember reading that it was across Spain, France and Germany for the high deal initiative. The sort of potential to expand that to Italy and probably into actually North Africa as well, in terms of making the most of the um solar resource in the sort of region, that's where we're really gonna start to see the The capacity grow i think
1: are we seeing the beginning of of some kind of european giant forming out of this
2: possibly and i think there does need to be some sort of company that really takes the helm in terms of uh, large-scale hydrogen development Um, i mean we saw orsted do it for offshore wind and i think we need to see someone really step up and take a leadership in terms of hydrogen Uh, i don't know whether that'll be a utility or a developer but it'll be very interesting to see who sort of steps up to the plate in the next couple of years who's who's
1: the best company uh, best type of company to run electrolyzers? I mean, they they just sit there like a utilities power plant. They just sit there churning this stuff out.
2: Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, you can look at it in several ways. You've got companies like Air Liquide, obviously, who are really experienced in terms of actually producing industrial gases and trading industrial gases. You've got companies like Siemens, who are obviously really used to sort of building out the infrastructure and actually have got quite a large stake in terms of electrolysis manufacturers so and then obviously you've got the utilities who'll be much more based on sort of the electric the electricity distribution side of things so there's no company necessarily that fits the mold I suppose as of yet I mean it's definitely a synthesis of a few attributes from a lot of these companies but I'd imagine we'll see companies like Iberdrola really trying to expand their presence in the space. Probably, well, I wouldn't be surprised to see them sort of spin off some sort of subsidiary with another company to actually focus solely on um, the build-out of green hydrogen.
1: Yeah, and and NL as well, yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised at that. It's interesting though. We're, We're looking at Europe saying we want 40 gigawatts, and within six months, we're looking at a single entity talking about one and a half times that amount. We're talking about this not involving the biggest operator in Spain, Iberdrola, the biggest operator in Italy, ML. The, their initiatives are yet to come. What, what we're seeing is this, oh, let's aim at 40. And in no time, every country will be aiming at 40 on its own. And some will be aiming at 70 and 80. And and suddenly, hydrogen is that much bigger than we realized it could ever be. Interestingly, you and I had this discussion, didn't we, uh, uh, in the middle of the press day, Harry, about whether or not hydrogen was going to um, take off uh, um, and whether the application that people had for it, uh, that, that a lot of fossil fuel companies are backing steam reformed hydrogen because they want to effectively replace natural gas with steam reformed hydrogen and end the process there. and and they, they give it a bit of lip service to the idea that, oh yeah, we're an interim step to green hydrogen, but actually they want to squash green hydrogen and give it no economic place to go. And we, we kind of talked about that, but one of the things I think that nobody in this market fully understands is when things change rapidly and you go through a transition, scale just gets distorted all the time. I, I remember going back to, you go back to when you first launched a modem for broadband and no one had heard of it, and hardly anyone could buy them or work them. And then suddenly they're in every home 10 years later, and then they're being replaced every five years. This is that kind of thing. We're going to see the electrolyzer war just ramp up and ramp up and ramp up, and the price of hydrogen come down so rapidly. The scale, you know, you and I were saying, yeah, it will never be economic as gas to power, but... It, might, it But if the hydrogen is cheap enough, it will. As you quite rightly pointed out, that relies on really, really lots of cheap, available renewable energy. Well, that's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you look, as you see with this hydro project, 93 gigawatts of solar, um, that, in, that in itself will drive down the cost of solar power probably enough to to get to the sort of holy grail of two dollars per kilogram of hydrogen. So going sort of beyond that into the sort of twenty thirties and twenty forties, we'll definitely see hydrogen to some extent play a role in the energy in the in balancing the electricity grid. But yeah, it will be it'll be interesting to see how the cost of electricity actually dictates how quickly hydrogen um the cost of electrolysis can fall.
1: Okay, we're on to the big story of the week that everybody's covered and (laughs) I think we we do need to cover it. The Texas debacle, which is so let's just just start with with the way it started. Social media was flooded with um, blaming wind farms for the lack of electricity in Texas, and I got caught up in that maelstrom, arguing that uh, you know wind wind farms don't have a problem with the cold. As the the week has unravelled, we've we've got and Harry's written a great piece on this. Uh, detailing all of the the, the the things that are wrong. We've had a problem with gas, and, and I, I had a, a physicist on social media say to me, oh, you're, you're a moron, you don't understand that gas can't freeze until minus 186. Yeah, but water droplets that get inside the gas can freeze. The equipment that turns it on and off can freeze, and and the water that's involved in some of the uh, other processes can freeze. It even stops a nuclear power station because some water froze. So, you know, and and I was saying batteries are the answer, oh, electrolytes freeze. And of course, this wasn't the problem. We were all off defending our technologies. These are not the problem. The problem is unfettered capitalism leads to pure markets where suddenly when there's a, a, a shortfall in electricity, you can have thousands of times the price of electricity and blackmailing homes to pay ridiculous sums of money just to heat their homes. And and Harry nailed this, that ERCOT is just, it's unregulated and they all chose, as they are all oil men who run it, to have as pure a market as possible where they can make a killing to the consumer's expense. And as a result, nobody has weatherized the gas, nobody has weatherized the wind farms, nobody has weatherized anything. So as soon as it got cold, everything stopped. Uh, Harry, talk me through what's wrong with ERCOT.
2: Yeah, so you basically hit the nail on the head there, really. I think, so... I mean, since it was since it's been deregulated in the 1990s, it's become basically. Well, it's the only state in the US that's actually standalone in terms of electricity, and the fact that it's sort of deregulated means that it won't trade um, with the other sort of um, interconnection markets. So it's very standalone, which is why we've seen a lot of Texans actually complaining that they're not getting the electricity when they can see the lights on sort of across the state borders. But yeah, so I mean, the, if the main problem is this deregulation and the fact that it doesn't have a capacity market. So what a capacity market does it means that these generators have to are paid to like keep a certain base load of generation available for exactly for this reason the problem with not having one is and having this this model where you suddenly got these spikes in price when there's a low um low generational output it becomes very competitive and people who bring generators online often cut corners to do so i mean that's why we haven't seen any of the systems winterized because in, in, a, in a sense there's not that much economic need to and if you don't if you don't think it's gonna be a very common common instance, I suppose it'd be like not insuring your car if you didn't have to. But so yeah, we just end up with a really freewheeling model where you've got this, these really low quality gas plants that just simply can't handle the cold weather. Um, what's been really interesting is seeing the Republican effort to, to blame it on frozen wind turbines. And I think the fact that this has been exposed uh, so openly in, in the mainstream media is a really promising sign going forward that people just won't be able to get away with this sort of oil obsession and actually trying to prop up the
1: yeah they, uh, the fossil
2: economy on false promises
1: the governor of texas is is a, a republican oil man and he's in the pocket of the oil companies and he's come out and he's asked uh, for all the um, the management of ERCOT to resign it's really not the management it's the setting up it needs to be set up again and uh, and i think uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is going to have an investigation, and I think when they get to the bottom of it, they, they're going to try and fix ERCOT. Uh, uh, what I found really interesting is, if you look straight north, if you go up into the northern states, Oklahoma, of, they they have they, they initially had a little bit of a blackout at first, but they've got no rolling blackouts. North Dakota, they've got uh, you know some rolling blackouts, but that's because they're attached to the Southwest Power Pool, and they do share with other states, Wisconsin nothing they show you a nice picture of their wind farms working perfectly and they're at minus 35 <laughs> You they're, they're um they're not they're a lot colder than texas
2: so their systems are weatherized not just the renewable ones all of their systems yeah i mean and you can and you can winterize wind turbines pretty easily in terms of obviously um, heating the blades and protecting the nacelles so it's not something that that can't be done and it's, it's really worth pointing out that only 12 percent of the power that's been lost in Texas over the past few past week has come from wind power so the the vast majority of it is
1: it's about is, three gigawatts uh, out of near over 30 I mean it's, it is a very small amount and we, we know what they, those people would have, have done they've got they've got low margins they've got they, they've got to compete in a very rabid uh difficult market they don't do not want their wind turbines broken so if they've got any ice forming on the blades they're going to stop them And they're going to do that because of the nature of the way business is conducted in that market, not because of some inherent weakness of wind as a source. I did a piece on um, a little investment BP and Chevron got involved in this week. They weren't the only investors. There were some financial investors in there as well. Uh, A geothermal. Now, it's interesting. I've always felt that geothermal is getting underinvested. But what they've done is they've taken some – this company – Called Ebor, Canadian startup, has, um, has taken a leaf out of the fracking book and learned to drill holes straight down and then straight across. But they're doing it so they can tap geothermal heat, not to. Somehow they, they um, almost seal this, almost like a pipe, and then they just allow it to heat and create a, a flow without it being pumped, which is quite an idea it's called a, a thermosiphon where the, the hot water rises the cold water falls and it just goes around in a, a kind of 2 kilometers side 2 kilometers down 2 across 2 up it just goes round and round in a circle bringing the hot water to the um, to the surface you then take the heat out of it you either use it for district heat or you use it to turn a turn a turbine they put 40 million into this i would have thought harry that we we've got systems like this there may be some originality in this particular attempt but I would have thought that uh, their verses were like this and if they could meet the right
2: LCOE they would have been active in the market. Yeah I think that's the that's the thing and I, I remember coming across it um, ever sort of a few a few months ago really and thinking about writing them and they couldn't really find anything that justified them as a different sort of company. I think The way in which they sort of go to... Am I right in thinking they go go a lot deeper than typical geothermal players? About uh, 2.4 kilometres. That in in itself is is a very long way down. If they can do that at cheap cost, then it really does open up the amount of places where you can put geothermal feasibly. I know at the moment in the UK, for example, there's very limited sites for geothermal because we only go to quite a limited depth and, and there's only places maybe in like Cornwall where that is... An appropriate thing to do in terms of the temperatures you've got under gra- Under the ground. So yeah, if you if if they can use this fracking technology and get deep enough where so that they can access high temperatures wherever you are, then then that is something. But I think the physical disruption of drilling that deep may be something that holds them back. But I think when you've got backing of people like BP and Chevron, um, there will an be some activity around it.
1: They use their own liquid. They don't use, they haven't said what the liquid is. They just say a liquid, which is developed, perhaps can carry more heat. I think what they're, they're saying is we've got the patents here and it's really about winning the intellectual property battle and then deploying at scale. We'll see if their trial comes good. That will take a while. It will take a few years before people can rely on it. Yeah, it could become a baseload. That's the key to it. It's a baseload. Use this like like you would to partner with and to smooth out. Uh, or um, wind and solar it could be cheaper than um, thousands and thousands of batteries just could be we'll look at um how biden is going to get uh uh, or rather how california is going to get
2: its hands on 10 gigawatts of floating wind yeah, I mean, it's it's still very early stages. I just think it's a um, it's something people often forget that there will be offshore wind on the west coast of of the US in sort of the late 2020s. So essentially, all this all that's happened this week is that we've seen a member of the California State Assembly propose a bill that ten ten gig for a ten gigawatt target of offshore wind capacity by 2040, uh, with an interim target of three gigawatts by 2030, which. Considering California will be solely focused on floating wind is actually still quite an ambitious target. It comes really as part of the state's wider ambition to reach 100% clean energy by 2045, which I imagine they'll start to bring forward soon. I mean, we know that Biden's um, made a pledge of reaching 2035. So I can't imagine California will want to be a laggard in that respect. For them to reach this sort of net zero target, they're going to need at least 80 gigawatts more renewable capacity. And considering they've use up quite a lot of their rooftop solar uh, at the moment, uh, which is where they get quite a lot of their renewable capacity from, um, wind power will have to play a significant role in that and this 10 year offshore uh, could, be, could be really crucial. The need for California to have f- uh, floating wind obviously is due to the fact that it's on the continental shelf, so if you go even sort of 20 kilometres offshore is often a kilometre deep, the, uh, the ocean. So having any sort of fixed pace... I'm surprised
1: at that go. number. I thought it was actually a lot nearer to shore than
2: that. Yeah, it really does drop off, but uh, it obviously just continues to drop off as you go further. But obviously uh, any offshore wind project, especially when you've got a such a protected coastline like California, is going to need to be um, beyond the horizon. And often 25 kilometres can be sort of seen from certain places. The thing that I really hope that this build stems is sort of the early development of uh poor infrastructure and transmission infrastructure because that's something that we haven't necessarily seen on the east coast we've seen sort of near-term targets set without this uh infrastructure development so obviously there's a massive shortage of vessels on the east coast for the build-out uh, whereas if california gets moving then they could potentially have the infrastructure there for when they actually want to install the projects in the sort now, of anyway end. you
1: don't you don't need the same infrastructure if you're going floating you have a deep dock you build the floating platform you tow it out and you and you, and you pin it to the bottom of the sea I mean,
2: yeah exactly and i but so but the main the main uh, infrastructure they're really going to need is this transmission system so a lot of the floating wind project they're proposing like the one in humboldt county for example are still actually around 500 kilometers from sort of the major loan set load centers like san francisco building a 500 kilometer high voltage transmission line is going to be expensive and I I just just went back to an article that I read of yours Peter from about a year ago where they were proposing a transmission line in a subsea transmission line in uh, parallel to the coast which can service all of the uh, floating wind projects I I
1: think that that's you know I've driven that coastline there's no way uh, the the millions of Americans who drive it every year would allow Mm. there to be uh, pylons on, on that part of the country or wind farms to be in view. You're absolutely right. You take the wind farms out of view and you stick the, the pipeline under the water, and they're happy.